Good morning. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. I am thoroughly blessed by being able to be with your teens this last weekend. Um, something that you should know about me is when Shane says that um, I'm a dear friend, there are very few people on this district that I love as much as Shane. I look for excuses to see him as often as I can. So as soon as he told me that he wanted me to come uh, be a part of the winter retreat for the teens, I was pretty excited. And another reason that I was excited was because, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, um, but you have an incredible youth group. You guys have, and this is not a joke, this is being streamed, I guess, so um, technically people can fact check me on this later, they can call me out if I say this and, and they think that I'm lying, but besides my own youth group, the kids that I live and die for every chance that I get, the kids that I get to go support every day and that I see every week, your youth group is absolutely my favorite youth group on the district. And I mean that wholeheartedly. My teens talk about your teens. I talk about your teens. We love them. You guys, you guys have like four teens up here serving this morning. And the craziest, most holy thing that I had seen all morning was, and this blew me away, this young lady coming in here with a baby on her back singing in front of everybody. And I was thinking, there's no way, right? Like as soon as she gets up here, she's going to pass the baby off to somebody But she came up here and she was singing praises to the Lord with a baby on her back, you guys. Do you understand what kind of love you have to have for the Lord and for your baby? To put your baby on your back and say, I'm going to lead a congregation to worship this morning. Man, if that didn't bless you as much as it blessed me, I hope that that helps. But that was crazy. I loved every second of that. I also loved getting some winks and smiles from some of your teens while they were up here on the stage. Because they were paying attention. They were worshiping. But we made some good friendships this last week, and man, I love them. I'm eternally grateful to be here this morning, eternally grateful to be at this winter retreat. And we're going to talk a little bit about the winter retreat. But for the teens, since they just listened to me preach three sermons, and y'all, I'm a Nazarene preacher, which means sometimes three sermons can be a long couple of sermons, if you know what I mean. Since they just listened to three, and now they are officially about to listen to sermon number four. I promise that I'm going to recap part of what happened at Winter Retreat, but that this itself will be another sermon. So y'all are not allowed to check out on me. You're not allowed to sit there and think, well, we just heard you preach this three times, JJ. Because we're going to recap some things, but stay with me because it's going to be different. I'm going to do something this morning that you may not have ever heard of before, although since you're in the Nazarene church, that is sarcasm. I'm going to preach a good old-fashioned holiness sermon. I'm going to preach on a concept that I'm sure that you've heard before. I know that your pastor is familiar with it. I know your pastor. I've met him a few times. I have all the faith in the world. I know that he has taught you about holiness. I know your youth pastor. I know your teens. I know that I just watched a lady stand up here, baby on the back, singing praises to God. I know you guys are familiar with holiness. But I'm going to do all of us a favor, and I'm just going to go ahead and preach to you what God laid on my heart. Because you may not be aware of this, but it's a little bit unique to be in a place where you know nobody, really, just a few people in the congregation that you're familiar with, and to be told to preach to them. It's a little tough because I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what your level of familiarity with Christ is. I don't know if you're in this church for the first time, if you're in this church for the one millionth time. All of those things could be happening at the same time. And I have less idea than anybody else in this room who's normally here. 
But it teaches you trust in a new way when you have to be a pastor going to preach in another church. Because at no point in time can I ever be comfortable with my knowledge of the people in this room and think I can preach something that they need to hear. All that I can say is, God, I have no idea who's going to be there. I don't know what the building looks like. I don't know what the people look like. I do know that y'all got like 802 sets of twins, which is like crazy. I'm pretty sure all of the twins on the Philly district, except for like maybe, maybe two sets of twins are all here at Mifflinburg. So every time they're like, well, there's another one. I'm just waiting for like a parade of twins to come walking down the aisle. And you know, you know they're awesome because God loved them so much and thought that they were so beautiful and so smart and so intelligent and so wonderful that he was like, y'all need two of these people, right? Like that's, that's how you know that they're really good. Don't let that go to y'all's head, all right? But while I'm here and I, I don't really know much about you, I'm not comfortable with you, I'm not familiar with you, um, what I do know and what I rest assured in is that God knows you well enough that God is going to lay on my heart Not what I'm supposed to say to you, because y'all will walk away sorely disappointed if JJ speaks to you, but what God wants to speak to you. So it's a new kind of prayer and preparation when you're getting ready to preach a sermon in front of people that you don't know. But I trust that the God who knows you is going to speak this morning. So if you will allow me to get out of the way so that God can speak, I'm excited to hear what God has to say. When I was preparing for this winter retreat, I asked Shane, what is the theme? Because I didn't want to just walk in with my own ideas. I didn't just want to walk in and say, you know, I'm going to have Shane's got his theme and I'm going to walk in with sermons that line up not at all with what he's talking about, right? So I asked him, what's the kind of base scripture that you're going off of? What is the theme that you're going off of? And Shane told me that the theme of the retreat was going to be gratitude, which is a really good theme. We can all get behind that. And then he told me that the sermon, or excuse me, the scripture that we were going to be basing this gratitude off of was 1 Thessalonians. You can ask Lane, by the way. He answered this question pretty like five times at, at the retreat. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. It's really short. But the best part about it was I actually just recently um, had a friend, very, very close friend of mine, uh, who passed away at the age of 29. Uh, She had cancer. It came on very sudden. She passed away. And one of the last things that she said to me was we were talking and I sat there and I said, if there was one message that you want our teens to hear, because I have our youth leaders preach sometimes because they're a lot smarter and better than I am. So I tell them, I want you to preach to the teens. I asked her, I said, Allie, if there's one thing that you can tell our teens, one more message that you want them to get. What is it? And she said, JJ, I just want you to preach to them 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 16 through 18. So I'd already been sitting in this scripture before Shane had even told me this is what God laid on my heart. God laid something on Shane's heart. He laid something on Allie's heart. He's laid this in my lap. So if I mess this up, my bad. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Paul is speaking to a group of people that I talked to your teens about, the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica. And while he's, cheat, while he's, he's teaching them, he's writing this letter to them, he's in a unique circumstance, but he kind of lays it out for us pretty simply, okay? He says that he was there in Thessalonica. He was there to help build this church. 
he kind of got them going. He helped them figure out who Christ was, who Christ was calling them to be, and what this world looked like. He was preaching this message to them. He was teaching. He was building this church. And then he left because Paul was sort of a missionary, right? And he went to different places and he started to help plant churches in different areas and talk to people about Christ. But he didn't stay too long in one place. Now, Paul was a little bit of a sappy guy sometimes. So when he left, he he left a piece of his heart there too, right? He loved these people. He knew them well. He had worked with them. He had helped to grow them. He loved them so deeply that he wanted to go back and visit them again. But he tells us in 1 Thessalonians that whatever the circumstances were, he doesn't get into, but he says that the enemy kept getting in his way and wouldn't allow him to go back. Every time that he made a plan to go to Thessalonica, he says Satan thwarted the plan. So he finds himself longing to be with this community of people that he helped kind of get started, that the Holy Spirit had led him into this place and said, I want you to build a church here. I want you to teach them about who I am, what I've done for them, and who they're called to be. He does that. He leaves and he wants to go back, but it just hasn't worked out yet. But what does work out is that he takes a partner in ministry for himself and he sends that partner over by the name of Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I want you to go. I want you to check on them and I want you to come back and I want you to report to me how things are going. The reason that Paul does this is because he hears a little bit about what the Thessalonian church is going through and sort of where they find themselves. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like this, as they are a church of people who know God a little bit now, right? They're familiar with God. They know that God has called them to be sort of set apart from this world, but still loving in it, sharing this gospel message, sharing the truth of Jesus Christ to the people around them. But in the midst of that, this church of people who kind of get it, who know what's going on, and they're, they're kind of doing things well, actually, and Paul's proud of them for this. But the world around them is starting to push down on them. He doesn't get really specific, but some scholars say that they were being actively persecuted in just like bully tactics, but also persecuted by the government above them, that they were finding themselves in this place where whether it was just that people didn't want to listen to them and were just disrespectful, or whether it was actual real life persecution where they are being beaten down and actually beaten for their faith in Christ, Paul begins to think, I hope that they're living true to this message that they heard. So when Timothy reports back to him, Timothy comes back with glowing news. Timothy reports back and he tells Paul that they have actually been doing great. And in the midst of this persecution, they are still holding true. Even when the world doesn't want them to serve this God that Paul had kind of helped them to know better, They are still finding ways to serve this God in the midst of this. So Paul writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians, after hearing this report. You get the background a little bit. You get the the text setting. You get where we're we're here from. I need you to know this because I want you to know exactly what Paul means when he writes these, these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. So let's read together. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now I want to stop for just a second. 
When I was younger, I had kind of heard this, right? This is a familiar enough text to people who've been in the church. This is not something that is crazy new. If you've been in the church for a while, you, you have probably come in contact with this before. But because I had never put it into context, I had never understood who Paul was talking to well, I had kind of assumed that they weren't doing these things well. So Paul was telling them, come on now. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. But understanding what Paul was actually saying, it was more like this. You're doing a really good job. You are serving God in the midst of persecution. You can do better. We can always do better. But you're not doing poorly. But even though you're doing a good job, I want you to remember, definitely do not let go of these three things. It's like he's standing in front of a church of people. He's writing this letter to a church of people, and he's saying to them, look, I have heard good reports. I know that you're doing well. But please don't let go of these three things in particular. Because even if you're doing well, I know that there might come a day, there might come a time when things get hard and you might forget to be rejoicing always. Please don't forget. I know that life might get busy, it might get hard, you might get distracted, you'd be looking over here when God's over there, and you might forget, but please do not forget to pray unceasingly. And I know that you're doing a really good job. I've heard about the thanks and the praise that you've given to Jesus Christ. But if ever a day comes where it becomes harder, do not forget to give thanks in all circumstances. He wasn't admonishing them, right? He wasn't telling them you're doing this wrong. In fact, he was telling them you're doing a lot of things right, but please keep doing these. Which to me makes it all the more important. Because it's easy if I was to look at somebody and say, you're not doing well here, all right? So I'm a coach in football. And one of the things that I like to work on is I'm a quarterback's coach. I work on their mechanics. I love body mechanics and the way that changing just minor movements that you do can add power, can add speed, can add all these different things and help you to function better. It's easy when I look at a kid who's doing something really wrong and say, my man, I'm going to need you to fix like all of the things that you're doing with your body right now to throw this football a little bit better. So I need you to stop. I need you to take your arm. I need you to pull it back here. I need you to just practice. Let's get on your knees real quick. I just need you to just twist like this for a little while. And I can work on those things if they're not doing these things well, right? But it's different if you look at somebody and you say, actually, Mr. Patrick Mahomes, you throw a pretty good football. But here are some things that you could do a little bit better or things that I want to make sure you know you're doing well so that you keep doing those things well. Do you see the difference there? One of the reasons I think that God specifically laid this on the heart of Shane and had prepared me to preach this kind of message to your youth group is because I'm telling you, my teens love your teens. I love your teens. They're teenagers, which means sometimes they're crazy. Sometimes they don't really want to listen. But let me tell you this. I'm not kidding. I'm not just saying this because they're here. I'll say this behind their backs too. Perfectly fine. You have a really good youth group. They are doing a lot of things really well. They are 
the kind of people that Paul is speaking to. And I suspect that this might be true of the bulk of you. That you are headed in a proper direction, but that it really helps sometimes to get a reminder or a refocusing. So, this specific text, these three verses, is where we sat for the entirety of the retreat. This morning, we're going to add a little bit more to it. So we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 5, verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was younger, I was in the church as a teenager. I was actually not in the church until about the age of 14 uh, when I was, excuse me, until the age of 16. When I was 16 to 18 is where I, when I really came into youth group and started to become curious about who God was. Began to really have God pulling on me and using other people in my life to kind of push me and smack me in the back of the head sometimes. God ever smacked you in the back of the head? He has to do that to me a lot because sometimes I'm stubborn. Sometimes I, I don't listen and God just has to say, can you please just do what I need you to for half a second, JJ? I promise it'll work out a lot better than whatever weird plans you got going on. So as God's doing this to me, when I was 16, he finally back in the head hard enough that I was like, okay, I'm going to go to church. That's fine. All right, I'll do this. And I go in and I, and I kind of began to grow in my relationship with God. But because I had gotten into church so late in my high school time, I only had two years left before I was 18 and moving off into the rest of the world. I wasn't very familiar with holiness. I wasn't very familiar with the Nazarene church. I didn't know what that word meant. I knew that in the Bible we said, God is holy. We're supposed to be holy. That's about all I got. As a 16-year-old boy, I had no idea. In fact, as an 18-year-old boy, I still had no idea. God had called me into ministry. God had said, I want you to go to Trevecca Nazarene University in Tennessee. I want you to learn there how to serve me better, how to lead people in serving me. I want you to work on these things. And I'm going to try to use you to do some good things. But I need you to go there. And obviously, like most of us, when we go to learn something, I didn't really know a whole lot. I was willing at the time. I, I finally had said yes to God. I went into ministry. I went to go learn, but I didn't really know. And at one point in time, I don't know if you've been in high school or college at a time where you're with a group of friends and you know some people who have had a class or had a professor or had a teacher, and you all get together as soon as you get your schedule and you're like, bro, you got Dr. Spross? It's going to be a hard one. But man, I got, I got Dr. Mike Jackson. That class is easy. Dude, he doesn't even really, like, take attendance. Like, you could just not even, you could just read the book sometimes. Dude, he gives you a study guide before the exams. You just read that. Like, you don't even have to pay attention. We have these conversations where we're like, oh, this is going to be a hard one. In this class, you have to write, like, a trillion papers, dude. But in this class, you have, like, the hardest tests of all time. In this class, dude, he still believes in pop quizzes. So if you don't study and you don't read, that guy's going to get you and you're not going to pass that class. 
Right? And we have these conversations. And I remember sitting down and I got my schedule. And on my schedule, it said that I had a class called The Theology of Holiness. And I knew by the name it was going to be a hard class. So I sat down with my friends and I said, have you ever had this guy before? Have you ever had this professor? Have you ever taken this class? What do you do? And they said, JJ, that's going to be the hardest class you take the entire time that you're here. And at the time, I was, I was pretty stressed out about that, right? Pretty tough to hear that you're about to take the toughest class that you're going to be taking the entire time that you're in university. And you start to panic a little bit. You're like, what if I'm not good enough? Oh, what if I procrastinate too much? God, you know I like to procrastinate. What if I just turn in like one bad paper and it's like so bad that the professor just hates me forever and he never lets me back in his class. But instead, I got into this class and it was actually a pretty hard class. We had eight textbooks that we had to read over eight weeks. You guys, that's a textbook a week. That is far above my 18, 19-year-old boy average of book reading a week. At the time, I was somewhere like a book a year and this man was asking me to go for a book a week. When I walked in there, the professor, he had the guts to stand in front of the class and say, well, you know what I do? I read 300 pages a day. And if you want to be a good pastor, you better do the same. And I thought, are you sure this is what you want me to do, God? Because I don't know, man. I got ADHD. I'm not trying to sit down for 300 pages. It takes me like two minutes a page. That's 600 minutes. See, I could be a math teacher. Why you got me preaching, God? 300 times two. Let me, let me have that. I don't need to fill out your whole eight textbooks. What if I skip one of them? Jesus, is that a sin? If I skip one of the theology books I'm supposed to read? Yeah, it's probably a sin. I think I should probably just read it. If I skim, is that? Okay, fine. Yes, Lord, I'll read the whole thing. I'll read the whole book, and I'll write all of the, all of the papers, Jesus, all of the papers. And I'm having this, like, prayerful moment going into class, right? Before I prepare for these things, I'm sitting here stressed out. I'm a little bit worried. But I get in, and I find out, you know, it's not that bad. It's, it's a lot of reading, but it's it's more fun reading than I was used to, right? Like in high school, when they give you these required books, they're not always books you want to read. But it turns out when you go to college, it's a little easier to read because you're specifically reading things that you're interested in. So even if it's still reading a lot, it's a little bit easier. So it's like reading like a little lot. You know what I mean? Like it's harder than I wanted it to be, but not too hard. And the first assignment that we had... First week of class, we got to read this textbook. And at the same time, I was reading this textbook that was like, itself was like 500 pages, which was a lot for me. Okay, that was a lot of the time. So if you're sitting here thinking, JJ, you're weak. You got to read more than that. That's not fair. We're not supposed to judge in church. It was a lot of pages for me. Still, that's a lot of pages for me in one week. That's crazy. And then the professor said, I need you to write a, a paper. And he said, I'm going to give you the word count. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember what the word count is because I was so blown away when I realized how many pages it was after the word count. It was 11 pages. In my first week in this class, Theology of Holiness, this guy was really baptizing us with holiness. He said, I need you to read a whole book on holiness with seven more to come. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to look at the Old Testament. Here are some scriptures for you. You're going to find your own. And you're going to write an Old Testament theology of holiness. It's going to be 11 pages. I was like, my man, 11 pages of typing. 
that's a lot of typing. I don't even know what my computer, if it can handle that. Like, I've never tried that level of typing on my poor, innocent computer. That's got to be abuse. Are you really okay with this, professor? He said yes. So I wrote this 11-page paper. And then the next week, the New Testament Theology of Holiness, another 11 pages, another 500-page book. The next week, we were reading another Theology of Holiness, and we had to write this time a Biblical Theology of Holiness. This one was 14. He took 11 and 11, and he said, I'll make it a little bit easier for you. You could take both of them. They can't be the same paper. You can't just combine things. These are new scriptures, new thoughts. And if you plagiarize from your own work, that's also plagiarism, which I'm not on board with, but that was his, his thoughts on the matter. So he said, 14 pages, boom, new. You guys, in three weeks, I had to write 36 pages of papers on holiness after reading three books. And we weren't even close to done. We weren't even halfway done with this stuff yet. But life changed for me after that third paper. The Old Testament theology of holiness, it was, it was really good. It was, it was actually kind of fun. We got to learn about how in the, the book of Leviticus, when they're telling you all of these rules, if you think about these rules, he gave us one crazy rule that is in the book of Leviticus. You can go look for it. This is your homework. It is a rule that says, if you borrow your neighbor's cow, and when you're using it, it gets sick and dies, buy him another one. What? You've got this much room in the Bible, and you felt like that needed to be in there. How often do you think people are borrowing their neighbor's cow, and it's getting sick and dying? Like, if this is a problem, stop borrowing each other's cows. That guy's grass is poison. This isn't fair. Don't do that to the cows, right? Like, this is in the Bible. This is a law for you to follow. But really, it's not so much like a word-for-word rule. Here's the idea. This is the idea of what holy love looks like. At all times, make sure that you are being too generous. If you're going to err, if you're going to make a mistake, make sure it's on the side of too much grace. When people look at you, we want them to say, man, that person is too gracious. Not Never letting that guy borrow my cow again. And then we come to the New Testament theology of holiness, right? And we read in Matthew, when Jesus says in Matthew five forty five, he says, the same sun that God causes to rise on the good, he causes to rise on the evil. So be like that. Excuse me, Jesus. First of all, I can't make the sun rise. But I guess if you're not really trying to give me a law that is word for word, what I'm trying to focus on right here, what you're trying to tell me is that our God is so crazy, the way that he loves, that he doesn't hold back a blessing from even the people who don't deserve blessing. Which is a hallelujah because we didn't deserve blessing. And we had worked on these and I get to this third paper. 
Okay, I'm going to give you the setting of where I am so that you can understand what's going on and what holiness is. I was in the guy's dorm. We had this big lobby where if you're sitting in the desk of the lobby, I was an RA, which means that I was in charge of the freshmen as they came into school and trying to make sure that they stayed on task while also my fiance was making sure that I stayed on task. So it was like a partnership, right? So while I'm sitting at this desk, you can look down and you can see the theology building. You can see the cafe and there's this big giant wall that had to be like a trillion feet tall and it was all glass windows right so I'm sitting here in the middle of the night because I had procrastinated my paper then I was doing it at like I don't know one in the morning because it was due at eight I was running out of time so I'm sitting here typing my paper at this desk and something hit me when I was reading through the kind of love that God has for us and I promise I had never done this before, but while I was typing my paper, I just started weeping. I just started crying because as I began to realize that all that holiness really was, was like a special kind of love, the kind of love that doesn't hold back anything from anyone, the kind of love that is so different than the love that the world is used to, that there's got to be another name for it. It's holy. It's different. It's set apart. It's something that only comes from God. When we say that we have a holy God, we say that God is this kind of loving that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, that doesn't even compute in their minds. When people borrow each other's cows and they don't replace the dead cow, and when people realize that if I could control the sun, you would not see the morning. And this God looks at these people and says, I want you to love different than that. And for the first time, sitting there writing a paper, not listening to a sermon, not listening to a worship song, kind of in prayer, I just began to weep. And I heard more clearly than I had ever heard until that moment, God speaking and saying, if you will just pour your heart out into this, if you will write this paper in my presence, if you will sit here and actually stop complaining about the reading and complaining about the writing, because JJ, you complain plenty. Okay, if you would just sit there and just listen to me and do what I've asked you to do, I promise that when you put this computer down, you will never be the same. When you leave this class, you will never be the same. When you come into my presence, it is impossible for you to be unchanged. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And then when Paul says to them, May God sanctify you through and through. He's speaking to the Thessalonians, remember, a group of people who were getting things right. In some ways, you might even say that they were perfect. I don't mean perfect the way the world uses the word perfect, right? Because none of us could be the kind of perfect that we think of when we're thinking about the word perfect. But let's think of it the way that God thinks of 
perfection for just a moment. The way that God thinks of Christian perfection, holiness, sanctification, this idea that you are set apart for something. So if you will set apart your life, give it to God, God will take you, God will keep you wholly different from the rest of the world, give you the ability to love in ways that the world can't even make sense of, and then send you into that world so that the very holiness of God through you, when you have been sanctified through and through, will spread to all those around you, and you might find yourself in a better, more perfect world than the perfect one that you were in before. There is a theologian by the name of John Wesley that you might be familiar with. He talks about this idea, and he uses it saying that this journey of holiness, this journey of sanctification is a journey from perfection to perfection. This idea that God has created you, and once you give your life to God, you are in that moment living the perfect life. You are in that moment living the kind of life that God has designed you to, to, to live, right? And that in that moment, God perfects you. God removes all sin from your life. God helps to do a work in your life. You are clean. You are perfect. You are whole. You are not as good as you will ever be. But in this moment of giving yourself to God, you have now reached a moment of perfection. Think of it like this. We had two violinists up here. We had two people playing keys and piano. We had somebody playing drums. We had the angels singing up here with us, right? We had all of this happening in a band. Think of our journey together as a church as this worshipful experience, this like we're band members. You can pick whatever you want to play. There's honestly, nothing's off limits. We've got tambourines. We've got that little block that you just hit on. We've got xylophones. It doesn't matter. Whatever God has given you, that's the instrument you're going to play. And here's how it works. God says, will you give me your instrument? And if you hand your instrument, your whole being, your heart, your soul, your mind, your body to God, if you give this to God, you are in that moment God's perfect musician because you have decided to allow God to take control of this instrument that you have but here's the catch in life, there are different sheets of music played in front of us, right, that we are given. If you go into play a new worship song when you're singing, it takes you a little bit to catch up, right? You might have this new song in front of you. You don't know the lyrics yet. You don't know exactly what notes to play, what notes to hit, where you're supposed to go on a run, who's supposed to sing what part, and who's supposed to sing another. You don't know this yet. But you have agreed to give God the ability to tell you what part to play. Which means you're, in a sense, a kind of perfect because the perfect God is using you. But when God plays this sheet music in front of you, maybe the sheet music is eighth grade. Maybe the sheet music is a new job. Maybe the sheet music is moving to a new state, a new city, a new town, a new place. Maybe this new sheet music for you is motherhood. Maybe this new sheet music from you, for you is something like infertility. Maybe this new sheet music for you is depression and anxiety. 
Maybe you find yourself sitting in front of this sheet music and saying, God, I have this violin. I've given it to you so that you can tell me every note to play, but I don't know how to play this yet. But here's how you learn. You look at the conductor and you begin to play. And what you'll find is when you get through that first measure, you are more perfect than you were when you were perfectly giving yourself to God. And then what you find at the end of the first verse is that you are more perfect than you were when you finished that first measure, when you were at that moment perfectly playing what God wanted you to play as long as you kept your eyes on God and agreed to let God guide you in the playing of this music. But here you go. Now you've finished the song. When you're done with the entire song, it's time for a new sheet of music. Something else happens in life. But because you have paid so close attention to the conductor up until this point, because you have learned to play a measure and a song, and now you have given your instrument to God, and you are still saying, God, I'm, I'm still right here. You're still the conductor. You're still telling me what to do, where to move, how to play, what to be. The second song is a little bit easier. It's a little easier because when you look at the sheet music right away, you recognize some of the notes. You might even recognize some of the pairings. You recognize some of the ways that you need to move to strum just right. You recognize some of the ways that you need to adjust in order to reach the hi-hat from the snare. You know some of the things that you need to do to get yourself on your saxophone from the A all the way down to the G and then back to the C. And when you're doing these things, you begin to recognize as you're seeing the sheet music that God has actually prepared you through the last sheet of music to play this new sheet of music. And maybe it's hard, but by the end of the song, when you've practiced, when you've stayed close to the conductor, keeping your eyes there and playing and playing and playing and learning and learning and learning, and you're in the presence of the conductor, what you find is that now, after that next sheet of music, you are in a new place of perfection than you were last time before you played this music. You are perfectly God's musician when you allow God to guide, but there's still growth. You can still learn to be more perfect. As you encounter this conductor, you learn more about how to play music. But there's one more piece to holiness before I'm done. Holiness isn't just about a violin playing their part well. It isn't just about a singer hitting the right notes. God didn't create the singer to hit the right notes by themselves. God didn't create the violinist to play the violin perfect by themselves. God didn't ask you to sit down at this piano and learn to play these songs to bring praise by yourself. God didn't ask anyone to do this by themselves. So there's one piece of holiness that I think we sometimes miss when we talk about being holy. This life of holiness, to be the holy church, is not just an individual call. It's a communal call. 
by sitting next to the person who is playing the violin while I'm on the piano, if I play with them, the song is much more beautiful than it ever would have been if it was just me. When there are multiple singers singing the parts that God has called them to sing and the times that they have been called to sing them, and we're all listening to God and conducting together, sorry, we're following the conductor together, we're singing, we're worshiping together, we're moving in unison as we follow God and bring each other along with us, that is when we are a holy people. When someone in the world walks by and drives by the Mifflinburg Church and says, Look, Pastor Shane is the bomb. He's doing some things really well there. But man, the way that Pastor Shane and the way that Wayne and the way that their congregation work together, they have these two wonderful pastors. They have this great congregation. They have a wonderful youth group. They've got all of these people working together. And it just looks different because each of them has given their lives to Christ. They've given their instruments to Christ. But they're not just playing their own song. They're playing together. And man, if that doesn't lead me to worship. See, this is holiness. This is what it's about. So, I leave you with this. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is speaking to a church. I learned what your guys' names are, by the way, by the teens, so I'm going to use it in a second. I think it's hilarious, but I love you. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians and he's saying, you are doing a lot of things well. You are, in a sense, perfectly living out in this persecution that you are facing right now. But keep working. Because there's more to come and there's more perfection in your future. You will never be so perfect or so done growing that when you come into the presence of this God, you can't grow more. In fact, you are not perfect. If ever there becomes a moment where you think that you could walk into the presence of God and not be utterly changed, if you can actually think that, then you have missed the entire purpose You have missed the entire reason that we are here. You have missed life. You have missed holiness. You have missed love. You have missed who God is if you think that it's possible for you to enter the presence of this holy God and not look holy when you leave to go into this world. But the best part was that Paul was writing this to the Thessalonians. But when he was writing it, God in God's self was guiding Paul's hands and saying, Mifflinburgers, those of you who are doing things well, who are doing things right, you are right now giving your lives to me, your church to me. You are a kind of perfect. But please don't stop seeking me more because there's more perfection to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for today. God, we're grateful that you have made the sun rise.
that you have brought breath to our lungs. God, that you have gathered us here together not to be perfect individuals, but to be your perfect communal body working together in the direction that you would have us go. God, I pray a special blessing over the Mifflinburg teens, the Mifflinburg pastors, God. Pastor Wayne, Pastor Shane, just realize that rhymes, God. God, I also pray a special blessing over this congregation, over these wonderful leaders that I have had the chance to meet and the wonderful leaders that I have not gotten the chance to meet yet. God, as they agree to give you their instruments, their lives, their body, their heart, their soul, their mind, God, as they give you everything that they have so that you can tell them just what to do, God, I pray that they will continue to rejoice always. God, not just to be happy, but to be so full of joy and confidence in who you are that it pours out to the world around them. God, I pray that they will never stop praying. God, not that they will never open their eyes, unfold their hands, and pull their heads up, but that, God, they will always and forever be in a posture of complete surrender and vulnerability to you, hearing from you and speaking to you at all times, God. And I pray as well that they would give thanks in all circumstances. God, not that they would just say thank you, but that they would live thank you. That they would live the kind of lives that to you offers the appropriate thanks for what you have done for and through them. And God, while we pray for this, God, we know that as much as we want this, you want this more. As much as we want to be sanctified through and through, God, you, it is your will for our lives. You want for us to be sanctified through and through far more than we could ever hope to want it. God, thank you for loving us more than we can even love ourselves. And God, we're humbled because you don't just want it but you can and do make it happen. So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.